2022 has been a year of political change here in Australia and war in Europe. But in this turmoil, is there the chance for these religious themes of redemption and renewal? Let's bring back two of our most interesting guests from 2022, Dr. Kate Harrison-Brennan, Director of the Sydney Policy Lab at Sydney University, and the writer, barrister and commentator, Gray Connolly. And let's begin with the moral significance of Federal Parliament's recent decision to censure former Prime Minister Scott Morrison. He assumed those extra powers at the height of the COVID pandemic in 2020 without telling Parliament. Kate kicks off our chat. I think it was something that was necessary. I wouldn't characterise it as Victor's justice, but I think the fact that such action needed to be taken was brought out actually in Parliament when Scott Morrison stood and showed no contrition actually for the actions taken and the recommendations from the Bell Inquiry are very sensible and now need to be put into practice. Mm. Gray, am I the only person who might feel just a tinge of discomfort at the sense that Scott Morrison has been kicked when he was down? I would not say that you're the only person, but I would say that the Rubicon was crossed when Abbott won in 2013 and they started the Royal Commission into Rudd. My own view is censures are given at elections and I think it's a bad precedent, and it was bad when Abbott did it, to be looking back at your predecessor and trying to bury them politically when the electorate has already given them their marching orders. At the same time, and far be it from me to defend Scott Morrison, I think that the Scott Morrison Dormant Commission's issue was among the least of his many grave sins. And I find it just bizarre that this is the one people honed in on. Executive governments in a crisis have to be able to act. No one knew in March 2020 what the pandemic would be like. There was a good chance that ministers could fall gravely ill and perhaps become very sick and die during the pandemic and the executive government would need to continue. So I think this was the least of Scott Morrison's many sins. I'm interested, Kate, in this take of uh, Jill Lepore, who's a centre-left writer and professor, writing in The New Yorker. She was talking about the culture of apologies. And you're right, Scott Morrison did not apologise, but she says, demanding an apology in exchange for forgiveness can never constitute healing or deliver justice. It is instead a pleasure taken by people who delight in witnessing the suffering of those in their power, if only briefly. This is a good thing, though, for politicians to remember. The power is fleeting. We could end up with this rolling series, couldn't we, if Peter Dutton is elected? I'm sure they'll find some infraction on the part of an Albanese government. Yes, I think, I mean, it's worth remembering. Empires come and go, don't they? Power is fleeting and the light of day will show up all sorts of things. You know, poor judgment that was taken at a time when power was on your side. So it is good for all those in power to remember that their day will come when they do need to give an account. But the idea of this was extracting some sort of apology, I don't think is quite the case. The fact that Scott Morrison did stand up in Parliament and show no contrition also bore out the fact that he was lacking political judgment. That was the time to say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. And I think the whole dynamics of the day would have changed for the better. What about the argument? I'm interested in what both of you think here. The line that Morrison delivered where he said, well, and it was his closing line and it was freighted with religion because we know that he is a sincerely religious person, but he said... If you can come in here and claim perfection, I'm paraphrasing here, but then he said, then you can cast the first stone. I mean, he's pointing to a bit of hypocrisy in politics, isn't he? I think that is the weakest possible argument for him to make and for any politician to make. The facts are our system is predicated on Parliament holding executive governments to account. It's not predicated on the basis that Parliament is wonderful. It's simply that it has a job to do in checking the executive 
I think that was the weakest argument that Morrison could have deployed. I think, though, that of his many sins, this was very, very small compared to the failure to get on top of the vaccine orders early and roll them out quickly and other things that he failed to do during his prime ministership. Kate, how seriously can we take the claims to a new integrity in politics? Because, I mean, the reality is, and you worked for Julia Gillard when she was the deputy prime minister and prime minister, you know, it's a place where the dark arts are perfected, if only because you want someone else's job. And there is such strong public requirement for there to be integrity. We saw the public support for something of a National Integrity Commission. On this, I would say perhaps it's the wrong question to be asking. Can there ever be integrity achieved at the level at which the public would expect? Rather, we should say we should applaud that there are new attempts to have a kind of politics of virtue and to foreground the value of integrity and to take pretty swift action. We saw with the legislation passed last week to take action on something that has been sitting on the back burner for far too long and to respond to the public kind of outcry and demands for this type of institution to be formed. Yeah, I suppose my question is politics is essentially about promising people something in exchange for their vote. It's incredibly transactional. If we're now going to say the moment that a politician promises a new oval or a sports club or a railway link like Dan Andrews has done in Victoria, does that constitute some kind of bribery, a breach of integrity? I, for my part, do not think it does. I actually think that's the system working. Our system is predicated on local representatives in the House and senators for a state going in and advocating for their people and getting the best results they can. I mean, that's part of the Federation Compact. That's not any sort of integrity issue. That's the system actually working. I'm generally against bodies that are outside of the constitutional sphere. It's the job of the House and Senate to keep the executive in check and to hold it to account. It's not the job of unelected people on statutory bodies to do that, to check the executive government. If you really think there is an issue, that's what the federal police are there for, because most of the corruption allegations are criminal offences. And I think public corruption generally, and I think corruption in parliament generally, is something that the federal police should be funded to do. You should have a separate commissioner who's in charge of that, who reports to the parliament and has broad investigative powers. What we've seen in this legislation being passed is a response to the fact that there were big holes to plug what has been recommended over a number of years from you know, a committee of judges, the work of the Australian Institute and others has pointed out that you need an integrated approach to dealing with corruption and hence a national body, hence one that would bring together what are otherwise quite disparate uh, ways of dealing with these issues. Combined, it provides some real power and a real response to public demand for integrity in politics. We've got to address something which is truly existential and that is this war in Ukraine. And it's a very, very difficult question because there is no doubt that Russia's invasion has been illegal, monstrous, but, and here is the the moral question, to end this war, do we have to do a, a deal with the devil, as it were? Or is it simply a case of saying, well, the Ukrainian people are willing to continue fighting, they bear the blood, and we have to support them morally and materially? Gray. All wars end, and they usually end with either one side being victorious or in a negotiation. So I do not see the negotiation as a problem. This conflict did not come out of nowhere. It has, in some respects, been brewing for 30 years. Mm. The Russians feel that they have genuine grievances. I do not see the war ending other than in some form of settlement that everyone can live with. I think it's very important for Australians who I think too often get their news from 
European or American sources when we're actually in the Asia Pacific and at the bottom of the world. Our most important ally outside of the uh, Anglosphere is probably going to be India in the next 50 years. The Indians are very close to the Russians. The Indians have made very clear to Australia their ties with Russia are not up for grabs. And I think we just have to be a little bit more realistic about this. That's not to say that the collapse of Ukraine is in our interest. Obviously, it's not. We have an interest in supporting Ukraine to stay in the fight and stay as an existing state. But I think the idea of dealing with Russia and hammering out a negotiated peace that Russia and Ukraine could both live with is somehow morally bad. I think that's a very naive and short-sighted view. Kate, you've worked in international relations. What is our moral obligation here? Is it to gently suggest to the Ukrainians that some sort of peace deal may be necessary to stop further bloodshed? Or again, is it up to them? Will we bear the price in blood? You've got to support us. I think it's important to be clear that while we're here in Australia on the edge of a beautiful summer, Europe and Ukraine and Russia are about to head into a very deep winter. And that's ultimately why we're discussing something like a negotiated peace, that there are multiple fronts of winter ahead and that this is part of a war tactic to start to unseat the support in Europe with the weaponisation of energy, to start to send these shockwaves globally about the nature of this war. And so I think, you know, this needs to be seen in the perspective that this is kind of a point of decision for the rest of the world that was not unexpected. This is what happens um, every year and in every conflict that is involved Russia and the Eastern Front. So that needs to be kept in mind. I think second, there are always these moral issues when it comes to conflict about how conflict is sustained and fueled and how long it takes to extract a piece or for one side to be a victor. There is a dark side uh, to the way in which support is provided and the sheer violence of that that means that a conflict will continue to go on for longer and for suffering to be drawn out. And that's what we're starting to see come to bear. It's not new, however. Yeah. It's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West with you. An end-of-year discussion about some of the big ethical and moral questions of the year. I'm speaking with Dr Kate Harrison-Brennan. She is the head of the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney and barrister and writer Gray Connolly. Let's move to questions of renewal in 2022. And Kate, I want to stay with you. Uh, We've got a new federal government. It's got a big lead in the opinion polls. But in reality, of course, it won with 32.6% of the primary vote, one seat majority. What really happened, do you think, in May? There was a lot below the surface, and it's probably a good point of the year to reflect on that. It's now been a good number of months. And In the past week or so, there's been a review that's come out chaired by Combay. This is the former Labor Minister, Greg Combay. That's right. And so reflecting on the nature of the victory. At the time, you could say that Australians, as indeed Albanese said in his victory speech, Australians had voted for change and in the positive had voted to show that they supported no one being left behind, nor no one getting ahead being pulled back. And the Labor promise was that we'll open the door of opportunity a little bit wider. Now, when you dug deeper, as the Combay Review has, you could say that it was a vote in many places against a failure of leadership on issues related to the pandemic and the vaccine rollout, natural disasters. It was also in many locations a vote for a more positive politics a vote seeking justice for women in policy, but also in their treatment in political life. And so with the benefit of a couple of months on, we can see some of those dimensions playing out. 
and it starts to speak to what Labor will need to do to build a stronger footing as it goes forward. Gray, you're a red Tory, which means you actually had rather little sympathy with the Conservative governments or or centre-right governments of the last decade in this country. Was it a wholesale repudiation of neoliberalism or how did you see this election? I saw it as very much the terminus of a certain Liberal Party that has been in existence really since the end of Malcolm Fraser's Prime Ministership. And by that, I mean the idea of the market as being the central thing around which you organise your politics. And while I think the Liberals will not accept that that is the case, I think that actually is the case because they governed for nine years. They did nothing about key fundamentals that any right of centre government would deal with, such as housing, such as expanding home ownership, such as increasing the number of people who have assets and wealth to their name in terms of taking on things like energy. A centre-right government anywhere else in the world would obviously develop and make the case for nuclear energy, which the government absolutely failed to do. So there was just a raft of failures and there was also this just ridiculous treatment of the electorate as if they were stupid. I think one thing that angered about Morrison was just the relentless treatment of the public as idiots. One thing that can't be said of John Howard is John Howard, when he had a case to make, he went out and made it. So, for instance, the GST election in 1998, John Howard was prepared to go out and make his case I think Morrison had this almost superficial way of treating people. So the failures of the government in terms of the basics of what a centre-right government should do, which is expanding the wealth of more people and their security, get them houses, but also things like the vaccine rollout. Yeah. I'm going to come to Kate in a minute, but just staying with you for a minute, Gray, what do the Liberals need to do to revive the party of Menzies or does it in fact have to find someone who will literally do a Menzies? And let us remember in Australian political history, Bob Menzies created a political party after its predecessors were wiped out, I think, at the 1943 election and didn't do so well in 1946 either. He created a new party. Is that essentially what is required for the centre-right? I think a new party in substance, but I doubt it will be in form. I think it's just too hard uh, as a sort of ossification of Australian politics to do too much in that regard. But I think certainly a refounding of the party around basic centre-right ideas, around the ideas of the forgotten people and away from a view of not just the marketplace, but a sort of I guess what I'd call a lazy Costelloism, the idea that we're still stuck in the 1980s and that 40 years later, everything that was true in the 80s is true now. It's simply just not the case. You can't forfeit about half the electorate in terms of demographic age and so on, who have nothing. They have nothing. And I keep coming back to this. You cannot have a conservative politics if people do not have anything to conserve. Mm. Too few people in the society have enough to conserve, have enough to build on, and frankly, to build on just to look their lives with hope, like the idea things will get better. And there's a point to this. There's a point to working. There's a point to saving. I know it sounds strange, but while the politics is downstream from culture, a lot of it is downstream from basic economics. And I think the fact that so many people on the right of politics were allowing central banks to do what they did, which effectively disenfranchised a generation, I think is just appalling. Now, Kate, you at the Sydney Policy Lab have been working on some big ideas that a Labor government, one hopes, might be receptive to. You think we need to rebalance the economy, don't you? That's right. And it was with this sense, you know, we've talked about this on the show in the past, but that there is a big opportunity here to think about the centrality of the economy. And, you know, as Anthony Albanese said, to make the economy work for people, not the other way around. And so there exists with things like the first wellbeing budget being handed down an opportunity to talk about, well, what is the ultimate purpose of the economy? 
as we look at supposedly disparate policy issues like aged care, early childhood education, to think about actually an economy exists to enable us to do what we value and have reason to value. And so there exists a great opportunity for this government to think about the way that it shapes the economy and also delivers demonstrable benefit for communities that are outside of the capital cities, the regional economies and communities, um, and to ensure that the economy is situated within community, not the other way around. And a great advocate of local solutions too, I believe. The Sydney Policy Lab is working on that. We are, and particularly on just transitions to a greener economy. So in Geelong and in Gladstone, and soon we hope in Western Sydney, working with communities to support them to speak about their interests, to work across various different interests that wouldn't normally come together, and to consider how will they make these transitions to a greener economy to do the things that they value as a community. And so that's a key part of the Sydney Policy Lab's work. Been great to talk to you both. Dr Kate Harrison-Brennan, the Director of the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney, and the writer and barrister and commentator, Gray Connolly. Thank you for coming back to the Religion and Ethics Report. I hope we'll see you in 2023. Thank you very much and very Merry Christmas to all of the National Broadcasters listeners. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thanks, Gray. Finally, this week is the 30th anniversary of former Prime Minister Paul Keating's Redfern Address on Indigenous Dispossession. Let's revisit part of that historic speech and why it resonates today. The message should be that there's nothing to fear or to lose in the recognition of historical truth or the extension of social justice or the deepening of Australian social democracy to include Indigenous Australians. In fact, as all of us I think here know, there's everything to gain. Even the unhappy past speaks for this. Where Aboriginal Australians have been included in the life of Australia, they have made remarkable contributions. Economic contributions, particularly in the pastoral and agricultural industry. They are there in the frontier and exploration history of Australia. They were there on the wars, in sport to an extraordinary degree, in literature and art and in music. In all these things, they've shaped our knowledge of this continent and of ourselves. They've shaped our identity. They are there in the Australian legend. And we should never forget, they've helped us build this nation. And if we have a sense of justice, as well as common sense, we will forge a new partnership. As I said, it might help if we non-Aboriginal Australians imagined ourselves dispossessed of land we had lived on for 50,000 years and then imagined ourselves told that it had never been ours. Imagine if ours was the oldest culture in the world and we were told that it was worthless. Imagine if we had resisted this settlement, suffered and died in the defence of our land, and then were told in history books that we'd given up without a fight. Imagine if non-Aboriginal Australians had served their country in peace and war and were then ignored in history books. Imagine if our feats on the sporting fields had inspired admiration and patriotism and yet did nothing to diminish prejudice. Imagine if our spiritual life was denied and ridiculed. Imagine if we had suffered the injustice 
and then were blamed for it. It seems to me, if we can imagine the injustice, we can imagine the opposite. And we can have justice. Part of Paul Keating's extraordinary Redfin speech 30 years on. And that's it for today and the year, thanks to Hong Jang, Hamish Camilleri, and also to our studio coordinator, Kate Levy, and our executive producer, Muda Tadaius. I'm Andrew West. Join us soon for another season of the Religion and Ethics Report. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.